Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, the Hall of Famer, Jim Cott, and this is Cott's Corner. We are on episode 328 right now, finishing up the week here with a doubleheader today, and we've got actually a tripleheader tomorrow uh, to close out the weekend. But uh, today's show, episode 328, before we bring Jim on, just want to thank our 54,000-plus faithful subscribers, grassroots MLB front offices, listened to in 74 countries. Thank you for your support. Your push helped us become the latest podcast network on iHeartRadio, a powerful podcast stream. Continue to give these shows five stars. Write some nice comments underneath. Ask us questions if you want. We'll answer them on the air. But that allows us to battle the analytics of the podcast world just like we do in Major League Baseball. And with that, I want to welcome our Hall of Famer, Jim Cott, back to his show. Jim, welcome back. Well, thank you. Always a treat to be back. And There's always a lot of interesting stuff in the world of baseball we could talk about. Oh, it comes up by the minute. Just when we think we have no material, it's running out. We get, we get a blast of uh, new information out there. So we, uh, I, I know we wanted to start with a little tribute uh, to show today. A great pitcher, unique pitcher. We didn't get a chance to talk about him last time, but I'll kind of turn it over to you to talk about the great Tim Wakefield. Yeah, I was so honored to get an invitation to uh, Tim's celebration of life uh last Saturday at Fenway Park. A lot of his former teammates were there. And of course, the executives and and many people from uh, the Jimmy Fund, which Tim was very active in, as well as Wakefield's Warriors, which he started for uh, disadvantaged kids in the Boston area. And, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that hit me and, and made it so raw was that I actually texted with Tim uh, the night before he passed away. And he, you know, he nobody really knew the severity of his condition. And he, he was so giving and reaching out to others and making us feel more important than he was. But I thought it's worthwhile to give him some recognition. I mean, he's not, as I said on Facebook, uh, the superstar athlete in Boston that uh, actually I, I sat next to maybe the number one guy there, and that was Bobby Orr uh, of Yaz and Teddy Ballgame and Jim Rice. But uh, when you watch the video and the things that Tim did in Boston uh, to help others, you really realize what a, uh, a superstar humanitarian he was. And uh, it was just so moving and meaningful to be there and, uh, you know, hear his daughter give up, uh, get up and speak and, uh, and, and, and mingle with uh, Dustin Pedroia and Pedro and some of his former teammates and uh, Wake left a, a lasting, lasting legacy on, uh, on what he has done for the city of Boston. Yeah. He, uh, unique individual off the field and on the field, obviously, with his knuckleballer. Were there any stories, any people you met, uh, somebody shared something with you that you can share on the air that, that you didn't know about, Tim? Uh, not really that I that I didn't know about. I mean, I learned a lot of how deeply he was involved with uh, with Boston. I knew Tim through 
a friend of mine who's uh, vice president of the Fenway Sports Group and was also a close friend of Tim's. So we played some golf together. But I think just revealing uh, how many charitable organizations that uh, that he was involved in, uh, and I think that's what was the eye opener for uh, for a lot of us, a lot of people there. But other than that, I, I pretty much you knew about his baseball career. You know how he was a an outstanding hitter. He was a catcher, and uh, then the pitching didn't go well, so he spent time with the Negroes and learned that knuckleball. Yeah. And he's, he's actually, uh, he has won more games in Fenway Park, uh, credited with more wins in Fenway Park than any pitcher in Red Sox history. And you're talking uh, Cy Young, Roger Clemens, you know, Pedro Martinez, a lot of great ones. So uh, Tim was there, got his 200th win. You know, he was there in Fenway, was a, a real force for him and a, just a tremendous, tremendous man. See, that surprises me, and that's not a knock on, on his career with all the great pitchers. You mentioned Cy Young. He's got the most wins of any pitcher in Fenway Park. That's amazing. Yeah. That says it all for his career. And, yeah, and how he – I think his – you know, you talk about him off the field. Uh, the, the fact that athletes are, are willing to – athletes like him are willing to give their platform for something bigger than themselves tells you what kind of teammate he probably was too. And – uh lends itself to the amount of people that were there and the words that were spoken about him. I wish we would, we would celebrate more guys like Tim Wakefield while they were alive and we don't wait. Yeah, till they- that's, that's true. I, you know, I think credit to the Red Sox, they, they did do that, you know, on a, on a Red Sox level, Tim was just not as well known nationally. And uh, I agree with you. I mean, now uh, the guys that have the most jewelry and jump up and down and celebrate the most, get, get the most attention. But, uh, kind of a side story. It, it always amazes me with the jewelry because uh, in my era, you were not allowed to wear any of that. It was a distraction, so you couldn't wear it. Now it's like they keep piling on. They want more and more. And, it, 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 and then you add that to some of the, some of the facial hair and the, and the physical appearances. It's just not a really good image for Major League Baseball. But uh, so when you when you look at Tim, what he was on and off the field, and he's not alone. There are many others like him, like uh, Derek Jeter on a more you know current list of names. But uh, yeah, I like the fact that they get more attention to the guys. They get more attention by not trying to draw attention, and they should, than the guys today that play and try to get attention, and they shouldn't. Goes back to the old adage. I'm sure when you're eating dinner with your parents at the table, same as me, they told you not not to try to do that stuff and, and stand out in that way. Let your actions speak for themselves. And if you're good enough, you won't have to do that stuff. Other people will talk about you. And right, uh, it's old old fashioned though. That's what we're trying to bring back. Well, speaking of old fashioned, Dusty Baker retired, and he retired with some some uh, great, great parting shots. He had, he had a nice little, nice little dig that we both loved and caught. Yeah. You know, it was, it was subtle, but I caught it because uh, I'm sure that that's a battle that went on behind the scenes. And it does. Uh, I'm sure with a lot of old managers, Bruce Bochy is, is fortunate in Texas. He has Chris Young there who actually played the game as, and brought that franchise to the top. But like Dusty said, I still have a lot of knowledge much more than people who have never played. <laughs> when I read that, it just jumped out at me. I said, I know the message he was trying to convey then because that's the ongoing battle we have. Uh, I met with Rick Porcello yesterday. I met with the Major League Baseball people. Is 
in trying to uh, influence youth people in, in anti-travel ball and showcase games and things like that. But on a big league level, it's the battle between those who have never played but think they know how to play the game and those that did play the game that really have no voice in today's game and yet could be very helpful. Yeah. Dusty was, what I loved about Dusty, because I happened to be in a uh, doing doing games, yeah, I played against him and spent a lot of time talking baseball with him. He's just such a sweet old soul, and, and there's some depth to the man. You know, you walk in his office, and you're probably going to hear Thelonious Monk or something on his little, little music player. I mean, uh, but but I asked him in front of a lot of people who are uh, inclined to go by analytics, uh, Dusty, what's the toughest pitch to hit late in the game pressure situation? I knew what his answer would be, but I wanted to hear it from him. And it was a well-located fastball. So when we look at these postseason games, uh, a lot of the hits that have done the damage uh, have been on uh, on breaking balls. And I know in talking to Rick Porcello yesterday, who, you know, he retired last year, but uh, his career came maybe at the peak of when when uh, suddenly, in his words, the switch went on to all of a sudden we pay attention to science and not the art. And uh, so the voices like Dusty are, are more and more difficult to be heard today. And when we get, as you see, the hiring of younger executives and managers, uh, that's going to, uh, that's going uh, or general managers, that's going to continue to be a big battle for, you know, tried and tested baseball people with playing experience. Yeah, and experience matters. It still matters. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's so many examples, and uh, I wish I could have had a microphone on the table with with Rick and I yesterday, Rick Porcello, for those that on a national basis don't know that much about Rick. You know, he came up when he was 19 with the Tigers, great athlete out of uh, Seton Hall and, uh, and, and pitched for years with a devastating sinker ball, ground ball pitcher. And then he happened to get trapped into the, the fetish that, hey, the best pitch is the high fastball, which, you know, if you can throw 99, that's fine. But there's still uh, a lot of room for good off-speed pitching, which we saw from Ranger Suarez and, and others, uh, uh, Montgomery, that can, uh, that can change speeds and, and throw a lot of different pitches in the strike zone. So, uh, yeah, it was so interesting to uh, to sit down with him and talk about uh, how he learned when he first came up and then how he had to listen to, uh, which didn't work for him. And I think it sped up his reason to retire at age 34. You know, he had a very successful career financially, and he just said, I, I don't want to be a part of that anymore when some guy who's never played is telling me this is the way you have to pitch somebody. Well, I think we're seeing a lot, like, for instance, Dusty Baker, I'm sure, as he mentioned in his comment, that probably had a lot to do with his uh, his exit, and we're seeing that across baseball now. You used a, a, an interesting word when you were describing what Rick Porcello mentioned. He used the word art. I got asked a question on Facebook today about I'm on a, a series right now, 30 days of trying to help parents identify ways to identify the proper teacher. And one of the ways I suggested this morning was – the teacher has to, um, they can't throw their luggage and baggage onto you, meaning they can't show you the way they were taught or in, 
Rick situation, sometimes these armchair or I, this is my made up word, these philosophologists, people who have never played or they've never really done anything on the level of expertise that it takes to be a major league pitcher, they are uh, flooding the minds of these these bright young people and really taking them off course. You can take somebody years off course or even for a, a career with the wrong information. So the word art was interesting to me. Um, can you can you expound on that when, when you say art as opposed to, as opposed to science, I guess? Yeah, well, I think in, in its simplest form, art is art as a pitcher is being able to pitch without power. Uh, now, I noticed Craig Breslow, uh, the brilliant Yale graduate who uh, played for my friend John Stuper at Yale and and uh, a very, very bright mind. He's taken over as the uh, baseball ops guy in Boston, particularly the pitching. And Craig is, is uh, interested very much in velocity at the big league level uh, and then adding the other pitches. Well, you know, that's fine. He's talking about the big league level. But what we have to do uh, is get to the kids, even the ones that you mentioned, you know, the youth hiring coaches. We have to get to a point somewhere where we probably eliminate a lot of travel ball showcase games where we don't, uh, you know, demand velocity from pitchers under 17 uh, that we, we get them to learn how to pitch, and that would be the art. For example, yeah, if you had a young kid that said, well, you know, or his dad said, well, no, Johnny can throw 89 now, and he's uh, 16 years old. Okay, well, have Johnny pitch three innings and never throw over 83. And, and so your body isn't matured yet, uh, and you, you can't try to throw harder than your body will physically allow you to do. And I think that's where the art of pitching would start. Like in my particular case, uh, when when I played my first year of, of minor league baseball, uh, the manager at the end of the year said, kid, if you come up with a fastball, you got a chance. So I was 18 then. Then at 19, I went to 6'3", 220 pounds, and I did come up with a fastball, and my body had matured. And then I was able to pitch with a little more power. Uh, but... Fortunately for me, I learned the art of pitching. We used to have an expression, you never learn how to pitch until you suffer an arm injury and you realize you can't blow the ball by people. You have to depend on movement and change of speeds uh, and control. And that's really where, if you watch, uh, if you watch Montgomery pitch uh, game one tomorrow night, uh, he would be a pitcher that I would say has mastered the art of pitching. Uh, you can watch the game. You know, you'll see that center field camera, and I can I can sometimes predict with pitchers what's coming. Well, the relievers you can because you know relievers are not really pitchers, and I don't say that disrespectfully. They're 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 throwers, like this Kevin Ginkle that's come on the scene now for Arizona. He just has that devastating slider, and for a short period of time, he can throw a pitch after pitch after pitch. He's only going to have to do that for, you know, 20 or 30 pitches. Yeah. When you uh, when you have pitchers like Ranger Suarez and now uh, Montgomery tomorrow night, uh, they have the ability with four pitches to throw them in any particular count in any situation, and you can't predict them. And hitters can't predict them either. And that's really the the art of pitching is learning how to how to do that without, you know, pitching without power. 
and analytics in a way or science uh, in a way the way they're trying to do this their their cookie it's, it's a cookie cutter approach as you said you can predict and, and sit there and it's so counterintuitive to to what the game has been and, and what we want it to be where with your eyes closed you can predict what the next pitch is going to be based on a math formula i saw that and it hurt him i felt bad for him is watching sonny gray in his last uh, outing for uh for Minnesota when, when Houston won that game, you know, Sonny's got that outstanding curveball, but you could just tell from probably, you know, the meetings they had before the game and uh, they were, you know, they were saying, well, you got to throw curveball, curveball. Well, Sonny's curveball after the few dominant games he had before that, I don't, I think it was tumbling a little bit more than breaking his sharp. And he gave up seven hits on curveballs, three of them were home runs. Uh, and so that's where the eye test comes in over the, uh, you know, over the science. And even my good friend, the baseball coach at Hope College, Stu Fritz, who I was just back there talking to the college team, and he'll mention a pitcher. And the first thing he'll say, he's, he's throwing 90-91. And I said, whoops, we've got to stop that. Like in my day, they would talk about a pitcher. And the first thing, if he was a good pitcher, they'd say, he can get you out. He can get you out. He's got a lot of pitches. So yeah. you know, that was more of a compliment to that was more of a compliment than, yeah, he throws 91. Well, we used to have guys that came up through hard. Uh, I remember one young Steve Dunning, but we, we started nickname, nicknaming him harder and harder because the harder they hit it, the harder he tried to throw it. <laughs> and it didn't work that way. In fact, Justin Verlander, I think, was a victim of that very early in his career. Uh, and then he learned how to pitch. Now, he learned how to still pitch with power because he has a lot of power. But he's learned how to pitch with a variety of speeds, not just uh, maximum ninety-eight miles an hour every every pitch. Yeah, and he's your example of you know had an arm injury or two. And what about like you meant, go back to Sonny Gray here and, and kind of touch on the art you were getting to it. Uh, he his, he he didn't have his stuff that day like he normally does. That lends itself to getting into the art of things. The science told you the curveball is the way to get him out, according to their their data sheets. But uh, that day, as the pitcher on the mound with the ball in his hand and the catcher receiving. It's not the same sunny gray curveballs we're used to. That's where the art comes in. That's when you find out if you have art too, right? The, in, the arm injury in the day where you don't have your stuff and you've got to start deviating from what your normal, you know, your one is no longer your one. It turns into your two. Yeah, exactly. I always wished I, uh, you know, looking back on it, and I've said it many times, I wished I had a great changeup like Johan Santana or Tom Glavin or Frank Viola or Jamie Moyer, those left-handers, you know, that could turn the ball over. I just... I changed speeds on my curveball, but basically uh, my my method of pitching was learning how to own that low outside corner with a moving fastball. But uh, on days that your curveball isn't working, uh, I use the spin rate. This is another thing that they have to learn to to uh, look look a little deeper into evaluating a pitcher by spin rate. And uh, you'll see a graphic on TV. Joe Smith has the second best spin rate on his curveball in the National League. Revolutions per minute, which is very sexy to read that. Yeah. But a ball doesn't take a minute to get the home plate. So actually, revolutions from the time he releases it till the time it gets to the catcher is probably about 13 or 14 revolutions. Yeah. But the RPMs looks very sexy. So my answer to those guys is okay, does Johnny Smith? have the same spin on his curveball in the eighth inning with the winning run on second base that he did 
in the second inning facing the number eight hitter with nobody on base. And see, his spin rate might be different. And that's what happened in Sonny Gray's case, I think. His spin on his curveball was not as sharp, even though that might even be that might only be a revolution, a revolution and a half, maybe that much. Uh, but it just wasn't as sharp, and it was pretty obvious from when they barreled up the balls early on. And then that's when, as a pitcher, if you don't have a third or fourth pitch to go to, you have to try to vary your speed on that one. Or uh, a coach I had early in my career said, learn how to make that curveball work for you. If you're facing Mickey Mantle and you, he's a good fastball hitter, as just about everybody gets to the big leagues, they're a good fastball hitter. Well, okay, you throw him curveball one and then you throw him curveball two. Now he's a better fastball hitter on two and oh. So uh, what they instilled in me was gamble early in the count and, and try to get ahead, try to get him in a, an 0 2 1 2 count. Sure, you're going to gamble but uh, on, on the fastball, but, you know, still the best hitters are going to make seven outs out of ten. So you got to gamble, throw it in the strike zone. And then when you get ahead, you can make that curveball work for you. So you can throw it, like, down in the dirt, and you'll get him to chase it, which if you saw some of the, some of the graphics, uh, some of the articles that they've come out with now on the chase rate and the number of strikeouts from some of these top pitchers that are pitches that are way outside the strike zone. But to the hitter, about 10 feet from home plate, and you'll know from hitting, it looks like it's going to be a strike. And when you're home on television, you'll say, how in the world did a guy swing at that pitch? But if you're in the batter's box and you see that coming with that, that devastating break, it's hard to lay off those pitches. So, And, and with two strikes, you know, they, they're going to chase more of those. And, and those are the kinds of things I think you have to – to learn as a, as a pitcher to, uh, to to make your pitches work for you in certain situations. And it kind of circles back to you know, your initial comment with Dusty Baker where put, put, take, take an at-bat or two for guys that have never played the game in, in the big league batter's box and see how easy it is to, uh, to do these things or stand on the mound 60 feet, six inches with a, you know 100,000 people in the crowd. Yeah, you repeatedly. We see we see those people try to throw the first pitch out and how nerve wracking it is. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, well, that's and I think I uh, I think I did a, either a Facebook uh, post or maybe it was a text to Rick. I get confused with some of them. But what the what the analytics people. Oh, I think it was to Morgan Sword, who's the head of baseball ops. And I think he's going to talk to Rick soon. And for those that don't know that that name he is the head of baseball ops for mlb and they they're doing kind of a study on the way some of us older but retired pitchers what our throwing program what our training program was like and why were we able to pitch that long without injury how we were able to pitch that deep into games or 280 to 300 innings you know we weren't supermen we would just train differently so I said, what's, what's hard for the analytics people and, and they're hiring people to do things that it's just wrong. And if you have not been between the lines and know what the stakes are, the stakes are higher, the pressure is greater. And so, you know, the tendency is grip the ball tighter, grip the bat tighter. The heartbeat of the athlete in a competitive situation the guys that have never played, and even with these pitching coaches that are running out to the mound to try to talk to pitchers, they have no clue. 
because they haven't been in that situation and you can't expect them to be. You know, if I were, uh, you know, if I if I had never played the game and then I was a coach and I ran out to a, a pitcher and told them this, I, I would feel embarrassed to say, what am I doing telling this guy what to do? I've never been in that situation. No, it's, it's a valid point. And I, I always kind of joke with, in that regard, when there's these crazy things we see, whether it's infielders pitching during games instead of pitchers, that the guy who's making that decision, I'd love to put them on the mound to finish a game just to kind of, we'd, we'd nip that in the bud. But we, um, so when, when Rick Porcello, we're, we're talking kind of about some of his stuff in and out of our conversation, you said he had some, some ideas and thoughts about uh, how to utilize or to reduce or, or really get under control this whole travel ball uh, velocity situation. Are you able to share some of that? Yeah, Rick? I think what, what Rick would like to do, uh, he would like to form, uh, first of all, the top priority would really be up here in Vermont or maybe down in Florida, Rick, to, to work one-on-one. It's always better if you can be in person. And I was telling him, for example, the four years that I had when Johnny Sane was my pitching coach, I mean, if I had Johnny Sane for 12 years and I multiplied those years, why uh, the performance was would have been unbelievable. But they said, well, why why couldn't you do that, the same things without John? And I said, I really don't know. And Rick was saying the same thing. He said, I know when he had Jeff Jones, Carl Willis, who was a guy that I coached in Cincinnati, if they were there and pointing him out little things day to day with his workouts, it was just so reassuring. And so he'd love to do that top priority. But other than that, maybe through Zoom calls, maybe through an app, is first of all, we, we have to try to eliminate uh, travel ball showcase games, somehow tying in with what you mentioned, picking the right coach. Somehow we have to train coaches and parents to understand that if they try to get their 13-year-old or 14-year-old to throw harder than he is physically able to throw, you're doing him a great disservice because he's probably going to end up on the uh, operating table or, you know, the big expression for guys that pitched in my era that had a little test of pro ball or high amateur ball, they'd say, well, you know, I was uh, pretty good pitching coming out of high school. And then I threw my arm out. (laughs) The big expression, I threw my arm out. Well, that, that means that you probably tried to throw too hard when your body wouldn't allow you to throw that hard. So that, that's where the training has to start. And I think Rick would take that even a little deeper in trying to implement some of the throwing programs, for example, that I had. I put John Stuper, my uh, teammate who coached at Yale for 27 years and was a big league pitcher, uh, to try to, to come up with a number of ideas that could give parents and coaches and kids the right throwing program, the right tools to develop as a pitcher and yet, uh, you know, keep from trying to throw too hard and injuring your arm. That's a steep hill to climb uh, because, you know, travel ball, the, the promoters are making a lot of money. I mean, the money parents have to spend to send their kids to these things. And if we could eliminate them and, and keep them at home and, and not play as many games and play more sports. I think I mentioned this the last time we talked and Rick got a kick out of that. I said, if I were to run a camp today for prospective young pitchers or ball players, uh, the first 15, 20 minutes, we'd play basketball. And then the next 15 or 20, we'd play touch football. And then the next 15 or 20, we play soccer. 
So now we've used all of our body, all of our legs, our core, everything, just to kind of loosen up. And then you get into baseball, but it, it points out how important it is uh, for parents to get their kids to play other sports, even if it's not in real competition, just sandlot ball, you know, uh, go down to the corner, shoot hoops, play touch football, play other sports. Don't just play baseball day after day, month after month. Yeah. Well, you're not out of your mind with that idea because there's, if you follow NBA basketball, people remember the Hall of Famer Dirk Nowitzki. Um, his coach back in Germany, if you ever saw him come to games, he did not look like your traditional coach. He wore uh, khakis. I think he borrowed from Jim Harbaugh. He would have a flannel on, um, and he looked uh, like he was living in the mountains. But when he would run camps every year, kids would crave going to him because he had used it to develop Dirk. And they would touch a basketball for two days. They would do. They would row on the lake. They'd be out in nature. They'd be playing soccer. I mean, you name it, anything but basketball. They'd be doing dance. Uh, and then it became a. Uh, it has become a very sought after camp because of that. Now I fear that it's because of the novelty of it and because of Dirk stamped on it. But the premise of it, I can't. I wish I could pronounce his last name. I'll put it in the show notes. But his first name is Holger. And his last name has a whole bunch of consonants in it. And I should, right, I should complain with D'Agostino with all the vowels in my, my last name. But uh, your, your idea and thought is, is not as far off as you may think or as Rick may think. Yeah, I hope so. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll tag that guy's last name we did with Doug Gooch, who was a catcher for the Padres, G-W-O-D-S-Z. And his nickname was iChart. that might be the right one for him but yeah i think if if we could get to that uh it would be great because basically that's what we did as kids before organized little league you know you in the spring you neighbor had a concrete driveway and a hoop to shoot baskets uh you'd go out in the backyard play a little touch football and then you played sandlot baseball we didn't play soccer then but there wasn't that pressure on us as young players to to try to perform at a certain level uh which was very good in my case that that didn't happen because i graduated high school 5 10 165 and my freshman sophomore year i was like 5 435 so i was a late bloomer so i would have gotten bypassed uh very easily with today's standards that they require of uh, of young players to be able to reach yeah you barely got made a travel ball team imagine that no, I could travel from my home to school, which was two blocks. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, I've got something, and, and you may you can bounce this off, Rick Purcella. You mentioned the special relationship you had with with your coach and teacher, Johnny Sane, and he had he had a couple as well that he couldn't put a finger on. Um, that's part of what what I do with these parents, try to help them identify. And some words that I've been hitting on lately is the coaches that. Uh, you know, it, it has to be about self-discovery. It has to be about exploration. It has to be about unobstructed self-expression. These are kind of, people think those are hokey terms and phrases, but when you're able to find yourself in whatever art you're doing, and it has little to do with the teacher imposing things on you, just kind of pulling it out of you, um, boy, you've got a shot to have long lasting love uh, for that, whatever it is that you're doing. And it sounds like you had that with with uh, with Johnny Sane and, and Rick had that with his his teachers. Yeah, and I had it with Eddie Lopat, you know, they would, I know they would ask me, uh, I mean, not, I don't use this to boast. I'll just point out how influential John was four years. I had with John, uh, I think I averaged 22 wins, uh, 280 innings, uh, 
a lot of complete games, low ERA, uh, with his four years. And when they said, well, what did Johnny help you with? I said, you know, I can't pinpoint one particular thing. He did teach us a little big deal. Rick and I were laughing about this because now you'll hear him on TV saying, here comes a sweeper. Well, yeah. that pitch has been around for 50 years. We called it a slur, which was a hybrid between a slider and a curve. And you could throw it with different breaks and you could throw it with different speeds. So that's one pitch that John taught us. It was sort of what we'd call a nickel curve or a short curve. Uh, but other than that, it was just the mental, you know, he used to sit on the bench and we'd be leading by, say, four to one. And now a guy gets on and the manager is going to get to the phone. He's going to get up and somebody in the bullpen and John would say, yep, when you're looking for trouble, you'll probably get it as soon as you get that pitcher up. And then he, he would have got even more tense. He'd say, whose chances would you rather have right now, ours or theirs? We're leading four to one. Yeah. So it was that kind of psychology that he, that self-belief that he built up, you know, when you're on the mound and you got a two-run lead and all of a sudden a couple guys get on and you say, wow, we got a two-run lead. We're in better shape than they are. Pressure's on them. They got to try to score. Uh, it was those kinds of things that he he built up confidence level in not only me, but a lot of pitchers that didn't have wipeout stuff that became good pitchers because, as is true with a lot of things in life, uh, it's better to do something with conviction sometimes than it is to do what might be perceived as the right thing. Yeah. But if you've got the conviction and can pitch with conviction and believe in your stuff, it's amazing how many hitters you can get out. Yeah. Now, do you, do you find that I, I had to observe a couple of coaches the other day and two points I, I brought out, and I only bring this up because – I think you had a special relationship uh, with, a, with a couple of men in your career. Do you find that the great teachers talk less? Oh, no question. No question. I, I learned from Johnny Sane. I was telling Rick Porcello this yesterday when, when, uh, when Pete Rose hired me as a pitching coach in Cincinnati, uh, the pitcher that was having some trouble was Tommy Hume, who was their relief pitcher, sinker ball pitcher. And they brought Johnny Bench in. They had some of their coaches. We didn't have a lot of video and things like that in that day. But they brought in a lot of guys to work with him. So he was, quote, my project. So his nickname was Hummer. So I said, well, Hummer, let's go down the bullpen tomorrow. We go down there. I said, just kind of get game ready. And uh, game ready for me was never you're throwing as hard as you can. It was just loose to the point where you can go out and pitch. And so now he's throwing his sinker ball, which is – would be going down and away from a left-hand hitter, and he could make it go down and away from a right-hand hitter too. Uh, and he's thrown for about 10 minutes, and I haven't said anything. And so he turned around and looked at me with a grin. He said, well, you haven't said anything. I said, well, you're a sinker ball pitcher, right? Yeah. Where are you trying to throw the ball, down and away? Yeah. I said, well, about 80% of them are going there. Do you want me to take the 20% that aren't and change your motion and try to correct it? I said, there's nothing wrong with, with your sinker ball. It's fine. Well, now he goes out two nights later, he pitches a scoreless inning, and, and everyone, well, what'd you do to Tommy Hume? I did nothing. <laughs> I just I just told him what he had was sufficient. And, uh, yeah, I think I, – and I, I didn't invent that. I learned that from good coaches like Johnny Sane and Eddie Lopat that uh, didn't overwhelm you with a lot of mechanical information and don't do this and don't do that. They – 
they helped you develop your skills, but also instill confidence in what you what you had going for you. Yeah, I'm obsessed with that. That's my one thing that I'm I am uh, trying to use my my work I've done in my career to try to find and help parents just identify things that are to pick the right teacher for their kids, no matter what they do. The other thing I was going to ask you, and we, I want to get to Bryce Harper because we're talking about the showcase era and his generation started that. Um, but, uh, you know, when teachers know two things, you just did it with your pitcher. They know when to get out of your way and they know when to let you go. And that means maybe move on to the next phase of your development, the next teacher, whatever it may be. Yeah, I, I, I think that, yeah, they say that one more time for me. So the t- two other com- two other components that I took a look at this past couple of weeks were teachers that know when to get out of your way, like you did with the changeup. Do you want me to adjust the twenty percent that's not working? You basically yeah. you got out of his way and, and allowed him kind of un- un- let him uncover and discover. And then the, the second part is once I see these coaches, uh, you know, they, they want to cling to these kids because it wins them that next, you know travel championship or whatever it may be, or they've got them in their skill development program and they use that kid to market in order to get more better kids. When in reality, it's time to let that kid go. It's time to let them go to the next teacher. Have you, have you witnessed either side of that coin? In your- oh yeah. You know, actually I've witnessed that in golf. And uh, so I think Matt Kuchar, who, who still plays the tour, but he was a, he was an example of it years ago. He was a great amateur golfer, then had some physical injuries. And then he was kind of resurrecting his career, and uh, he ended up going to see uh, Chris, o, Chris O'Donnell, Chris O'Connor, I'm not sure, and he was a teacher in Texas, and uh, on the recommendation of a fellow pro, and as he was hitting balls, the, the teacher made a suggestion, and he hit about six balls, and he said, that's it, and he found it just like that, so the teacher left him alone. Uh, I've had that experience uh, with a lot of my friends that are pro golfers, where they go to an expert teacher who has played some before. They, not necessarily. I mean, guys like that in teaching, they don't necessarily have to have been great players, but if they can recognize something in you mechanically uh, that you can change. But once you get it, uh, I think I told you when I asked Whitey Ford when I was pitching against him in 1962 and I, in Minnesota in our bullpens, uh, first of all, I probably have to identify Whitey Ford with today's audience, because uh, if they're younger, Whitey was one of the great Yankee pitchers of all time, a lot of World Series records, crafty little lefty that didn't throw particularly hard, but he had a lot of spin on his uh, fastball, a lot of sinking action. So I walked over to the fence while we were warming up to face one another, and I said, he could have told me to go take a hike, or he could have told me several things that wouldn't be printable. And uh, I said, could you show me how you, would you tell me how you hold your fastball? So he showed me this unusual grip. Uh, we hear two seam, four seam, ours with, with the seam or across the seam. And this grip was like a little on the diagonal side. And so he showed it to me, relaxed thumb. I went back, a little softer grip, hold it like an egg, threw it, like the action on it. That was 22, threw my fastball like that for the next 21 years just by going over and it didn't take a lot of time just by, by changing my grip. So there are a lot of stories like that. And you're right. The good coaches will say, okay, that's enough. You don't need the whole bottle of aspirin. You know, just one today will cure the problem. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. We have so many 
so many coaches, I think, in all sports, and it, it gets really tough in your position dealing with parents because they want so badly to be able to put their stamp on their player or their their child or their team. And first of all, it's nice of them to volunteer their time, but the best thing they could do is just throw the ball out and let these kids play and whatever talent they have will will come to the surface eventually if you just stay out of their way. Yeah, let them have fun and enjoy it. I and I won't say where I was at because I don't want to uh, be negative on it. But I watch. I had to go watch a group and give my thoughts behind and uh, behind the scenes. And I, I sat there and my my first initial thing I wrote on the paper was I kept hearing good, 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 good. Nothing I saw was good. It was. Uh, it was. Uh, I, I termed it as unconscious incompetence. I said these kids out here, the coaches, even the parents, were all not very good, and they weren't aware of it. And. Uh, and that's 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 the first step of learning, though. We all do that when we become a beginner with at anything, so that's okay. But these kids have been at it for like a couple of years now with this group, spending thousands of dollars. And I was just like, wow, that some of some of these most of these kids never get past that unconscious incompetent stage. And uh, if you can get them to, you know, I guess conscious incompetence where they're they're not good and they know it, that's potential for growth. Eventually, you hope to get the conscious competence. But yeah, and then. The, the, the part where, the, you know, where someone like you were at as a pitcher, you had your time where you were unconscious competent, where you were just in the flow and you were feeling it and, you know, the balance, rhythm and timing. And that's where we hope to get. That's the that's the elite learners right there where there's this space between the notes. So anyway, I digress. That's my that's my one thing I get up with passion every day about. But I want to get to Bryce Harper now. Bryce Harper uh, had interesting comments to make after. And you, and you caught it again. You caught a couple of key notes this past week with Dusty and then with Bryce Harper, something he said after the loss. Yeah, well, I was interested. You know, he said what a gut punch that was. And then he used the two numbers, 109.44. So I thought, well, what does that mean? So I looked into it, and that meant that his exit velocity was 109 miles per hour. His launch angle was 44 degrees. And he said, I missed that pitch by a tenth of a second. And my comment was, well, that's what pitching's all about, is to make you miss it by just a little bit. You don't have to swing yeah. with it. And I can tell you the thousands of times that hitters came back to the dugout and say, oh, I just missed it, just popped it up. Well, if you saw the Phillies last at-bats against uh, against the Diamondbacks, uh, they hit seven fly balls outs and, eight, and 11 strikeouts. So uh, the Diamondbacks, on the other hand, their hits were up the middle, ground balls. So when Bryce Harper's at bat, he's a product of the launch angle exit velocity age. Yeah. And I saw a comment that my uh, former teammate and friend Keith Hernandez posted today. And Keith, with that same pitch that Harper just missed, knocking maybe out of the park, uh, Keith was a great candidate to get on top of that fastball and maybe hit a line drive to the left center or use the whole field and knock in two runs with a double. But if your mentality is going to the plate with maximum exit velocity and launch angle, if that's on your mind, uh, you know, 8% of the fly balls become home runs, which means that 92% of them become outs. And that's what happens to the hitters that have launch angle and exit velocity on their mind. Instead of barreling it up and hitting it anywhere like the Diamondbacks did, and they got 11 hits and stole some bases and 
Uh, I'm a big fan of theirs now. They remind me of uh, our 82 Cardinal team that hit 67 home runs. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't be disappointed if Texas won for Chris Young and Bruce Bochy, but but Arizona would be a great example maybe to general managers that uh, you don't need $300 million uh, players that you think can hit 40 home runs. Maybe you need to start looking at uh, – at players that can barrel up the ball and do situational hitting, steal bases. I was amazed. I think we even saw two or three sacrifice bunts in that game. Yeah, I had to re- rewind it on my TV to make sure that was right. But the kid, yeah. the, the rookie, uh, he had a couple on his own. He sacrificed that bats to move guys over. Yeah. In the third yeah, level. That was really uh, – that was really enjoyable to watch. The most unlikely team, when you looked at the – you know, the 12, what was there, 12 teams out of 30, 40% of them now qualify for the for the so-called tournament, the October tournament, and the Diamondbacks were the last ones in. Yeah. But they, they, really play, uh, they really play baseball and not just powerball. And they, they did some interesting things in the bases. You saw them run a little down-angle offense at the right times. Yeah. Where, you know, when, when the Phillies were going well, there was a time, and, I, and I'll credit Will George, he had texted me, these are these are egoless at bats, and we were counting them. The Phillies had four or five in a row. This was in the middle of the series, and then they just abandoned it. And then yeah. they, the where they when they were going well, they were moving the ball around the field, gap the gap. Always had runners on base, putting pressure on pitchers and defense to kind of protect that ninety feet. Um, but Arizona never abandoned that. They stayed they stayed true to form from the beginning. And yeah. um, I have, I have, I didn't get to watch them a lot this year, and I've fallen in love with that Carroll kid, Corbin Carroll. I mean, oh yeah, yeah. Well, well you know, you mentioned the at bats, and I keep track too of it, and not just singling out Trey Turner, but the the Phillies got a runner on second early on, uh, and ground ball to third base. He missed I mean, the bunt earlier. There, he missed the bunt early in that bat, the first pitch. The great Dick Allen, who I played with, and was you know Hall of Fame potential. Hope he gets there soon. One of the great power hitters in the. 60s and then in the 70s when I played with him I mean if there's a man on second if he had to hit it off the knob of the bat he is going to figure out a way to hit the ball to right field and and toward the right side and advance the runner to third base that was just a fundamental baseball 101 I don't you know if you're down two runs late in the game and you need a home run that's different but that's why if you just watch the scoreboard that'll tell you how to play but the great players uh, can do that as well as hit the ball out of the ballpark. And the, and you're right, the Phillies just, they abandoned that uh, philosophy when they did get runners on. Yeah, there, yeah, there were short spurts where they were doing it that way. But I, I hope, the same thing you hope, that people are watching the way Arizona plays. They watch the way those 80, because when the 82 Cardinals, they did it. I think the Royals did it. Was that in the early 90s that they, they played that way as well? They um, when, when they were rolling, they had speed. They moved the ball around the field that people will try to emulate that because Arizona did not spend a lot of money. They may have been last in payroll in MLB. Yeah. At least- yeah, I think, yeah, the, uh, the, the game was the team you mentioned, the Royals. The other thing that made it uh, a little bit different approach is that there were a lot of AstroTurf fields. In. Yes. So players were encouraged to hit the ball on the ground. Yeah. Um, now you don't have many, if any, I don't think if they do have artificial turf, they now have this, uh, this artificial turf that actually, plays somewhat like grass, I guess. I mean, all the fields are pretty hard these days. The the infields, you see the balls bounce way up in the air, but there's still a lot of value in uh, 
and players that can just hit line drives or hit the ball on the ground, not try to launch it. Yeah. And not, and not to, to excuse Bryce Harper. He grew up in that era. In fact, his whole premise was to be the guy that hit the ball the hardest and the farthest. And there was even exploits of him on ESPN as a 15 year old, 16 year old, I'm swinging 36 inch, you know, 34 ounce bats, driving the ball, you know, at these showcases with, you know, the numbers flashing up. That's when the numbers were new. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm, I'm encouraged by the way he plays. I like how hard he plays. I do like the fact that he's willingly converted to first base, but uh, we've got to get guys like him. Um, it's okay, I guess, to talk about it, but to put it in a context, because uh, when you shot me 109.44, uh, it tells you where my mind was. I, I added it up right down and said, that doesn't add up to 162. Jim's lost his mind. He can't do math anymore. And- well- very, very, very powerful. I might have lost my mind, but I just think, you know, if you grew up in that era and that's on your mind, uh, exit velocity, launch angle, uh, you know, there's there's different swings for different situations. And that's why I mentioned like Keith Hernandez, who was one of the great uh, two-strike clutch hitters, uh, you know, the on, on particularly high fastballs. Most lefties are our low ball hitters. Keith was not your classic low ball hitter, but he could take the the high pitch and hit it sharply the opposite way as well as anybody, which is what that situation called for. It didn't call for, okay, I'm going up there and I'm going to launch it 44. Yes, if you if you happen to do it properly, it'll go out of the ballpark. But again, the percentages are, I believe it's eight percent, eight to ten percent of fly balls will end up being home runs, which means 90% of them will be outs. And I believe the last Ginkle struck out the side in the eighth, but I think Seawald, I think every out in the ninth was, was maybe a fly ball out, but uh, they got a lot of balls uh, hit in the air that were just outs. Yeah. No, no. Uh, again, we, we, we hope that, and I, I love what you said. We talked before the show about the Keith Hernandez approach and I can visualize him making that play. I hope he gets in the Hall of Fame because his Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of saber metric. There's a lot of uh analytical facts now. I was hoping that uh, this is kind of another story, but I was hoping Don Mattingly would get more support uh, the last ballot which would enhance Keith's uh Keith's chances. But uh you know you're when they when they look at a first baseman or a third baseman, they look at, you know, power numbers and uh so when you're a when you're a first baseman that isn't that prototype first baseman, then uh, you don't you don't get as much of the uh, you don't get as much of the attention from the voters. Ironic, since they want to make everybody one one cut right utility player, they should appreciate for all. With um, we 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 can touch on the World Series preview, but you had you had great note, and I had totally forgotten about the draft lottery. Um, I actually had to look some stuff up to get reacquainted with it, but you had some thoughts on the draft lottery for MLB. Yeah, I saw the, uh, that was an article today because that's coming up in December. And, uh, well, I have a, I have a thought on the draft period because if you look at these percentages and, 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 you know, now it's not just the worst teams, the, the 12 teams in the playoffs, they don't, uh, they're, they're down at the bottom of the list. But when I looked at all of this, I thought, I wish they would just abolish the draft completely. And I've always said that, uh, I think it's unconstitutional. I think as an American citizen, you should be able, if the, if somebody wants you to work for them, you should be able to go and work for them. And what it would do in baseball is it would put it back in the hands of the scouts. Yeah. 
saw the movie Trouble with the Curve, one of the great baseball movies, and you see the old scout Clint Eastwood using his eyes to, to determine whether this particular hitter is talented or not. And we can get some of those good old scouts with the right, with the right looks instead of depend on uh, going to these games and clocking a kid's exit velocity and launch angle and, and signing them accordingly. Uh, I wish we could just do away with the draft. And there's more players, I think, that would get an opportunity to reach the big leagues without the so-called five tools or particular speed. You know, I know, I know in the past, we, I've been on teams where they've signed these, these uh, college players or high school players out of school. And, you know, they're built like, a, like Mr. America. And then in about two years, how's so-and-so doing? Well, he looks good in the lobby, but he's not playing too well. <laughs> so we need to get the guys that could play. Yeah, I think I agree. I think makeup would become a very important part of that because with the scouts being on the ground and they're seeing these guys six, seven, eight, nine times, they get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. So makeup now becomes a key component to the scouting yeah. report. On the- Rick was telling me yesterday he had a tryout similar to I have a friend here in Vermont that I got a tryout with the. Uh, it was a good college, a good college pitcher at Siena. And I got him a tryout with the Rangers years ago, and he went to this tryout. And they said, how many pitches do you have? Well, I got fastball, curve, slider. Okay, get warmed up. Throw me five of each pitch. Yeah. And then they had the guy, and that was his tryout. I said to the scout, how in the world can you tell if this kid is capable of pitching between the lines when the pressure is different by just clocking five of each of his pitches on the sideline? That's not – First of all, it's stupid and it's not fair. You, you're 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 letting a lot of potential talented players, uh, you're you know you're killing their opportunity. Yeah, I uh, I have I I was privy to getting one theory on one of those, but it, it happened multiple times. We had we had a lot of the what you'd call the bird dogs in our area in upstate New York because I think a lot of players would get missed up in that area. Hank Caputo, Jack Joyce were two of the guys. And I, I'd ask them the same thing. They'd bring me from the time I was a sophomore in high school all the way to my senior year. And, I'd, you know, I asked politely, you know, what do you guys get out of this? I'm, I come in, you know me by now. You've seen the thousand of my games. You come in, I'm, I'm taking five ground balls from shortstop with the backhand. You're, you know, seeing how far I throw across. You're, you're letting me run again. I'm hitting from both sides of the plate. You know, I'm doing all the tool stuff and then I go home. It takes, and uh, he's, he, they're, premise was good, good you know it was actually part of the makeup because we really don't need to see you throw and do that stuff anymore we, we come and watch your games but it shows our bosses that no matter what time of day no matter what time of year no matter where we ask you to go to do this uh, it could be the day before it could be two hours before you show up and he goes that's what we're trying to show you now that that was just me um that's that's what happens when you're five foot ten 160 pound uh you know little guy from, from upstate that you had, I guess that was, but that's part of the makeup that you're talking about. That helped me get signed, you know, sure. just showing up yeah. uh, every time. Didn't matter if I was sore, but it was in the middle of my college basketball season, just show up. Um, but I agree with you. I, I, I brought that up too. I have two neighbors, a doctor and a lawyer, and they, we were actually arguing on this point because they love, they are, they're always trying to get on the podcast or in my, my, my blog. So they finally got on, but I'm not using their names. Um, but they, they, love the drafts because they get into it. It's, you know, media. And uh, I said, how would you have liked when you graduated from law school or med school, you were the number one kid in your class. You looked, you worked your rear end off, got loans, you know, up to 
up the wazoo to pay off for years. And they said, okay, congratulations, Johnny Jones, you're going to Alaska. And you're like, well, that would be unfair. I said, that's what they do to baseball. It's yeah. Basketball, it's what they do to football. Yeah. You, got, you become the number one prior, whatever, wherever you are. And you're just, and we've accepted it for years, but I agree. I think it should go back to that time and it would put all oh, the scouts would be, it, it, it would get back to, I think that's the next step to gaining balance with analytics and the uh, experience. I really do. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Well, it's, it's a, it's a steep hill to climb. It's gone so far now. And I'm, I'm glad major league baseball uh, is interested. I've even volunteered. I said, I'd be happy to do a public service announcement uh, uh, to reach out to parents and say, you know, this is what has to be done if we're going to want to uh, save a lot of our young players from injuries, particular pitchers. Uh, you know, you don't see a lot of infielders or outfielders with with arm injuries because they're just throwing it over to first base or in the outfield. So it's mainly pitchers that are suffering from the arm injuries by, uh, you know, trying to get them to, to throw too hard, too young. So somehow or other, if we get major league baseball behind it and pushing it, maybe uh, won't happen in my lifetime, but maybe uh, it'll make an impact and, and, uh, and be positive for some of these young kids that are get overlooked. Well, tell, tell them with, with their permission, uh, Morgan Swords endorsement, we'd be more than happy to lead off every one of your podcasts with that special service, uh, special. Yeah, yeah, would, that's good. If they well, would. I'm glad that they have recognized the problem. Yes, that's part of it. Because the, the, the factor that caused them to recognize it is that what's missing in the game is the star starting pitcher matchup. Yeah. If you had Gibson against Koufax. Uh, or in more modern times, say if you had Pedro uh, against uh, Tim Lincecum's now, he gets kind of overlooked. He had a couple of the great years in baseball. But say Scherzer and Kershaw or, or Verlander and Kershaw, if you had – I'm coming to the park tonight because these guys are going toe-to-toe. They're going to be there in the ninth inning, but they're not. You know, you go there and teams are paying a lot of money the starting pitchers that all they are is long relievers. They go four innings. <laughs> so I don't know if general managers and owners will soon recognize and say to agents, look, I can't pay your guy $30 million a year anymore. He's only going five innings, and then I got to pay the next two relievers. I got to pay them 10 a year, and then I got to pay my closer 25 a year. And years ago, you could get all that done with one pitcher. Yep. So you got to find a way to get that to happen again. Yep, I, I would do a special service announcement to the pitchers, to, just stating that because if they don't believe that, and I, I don't mean to go conspiracy theory on it, but I think there's a, a conscious effort to reduce the value of pitchers out there so they don't have to pay for it, and that they're they're well on their way to doing that. And if you, the pitchers don't believe that, take a look at the running back in the NFL. They they used to they abuse those guys for years. Come in, forty touches a game. Four-year shelf life, boom, move on to the next one. They become very expendable, and they're paid that way now. Um, I hope I hope pitchers stand up for themselves soon. That may be our second one. We'll do a special service announcement to youth pitchers in the beginning. We'll hit the major league pitchers at the end on our podcast. <laughs> okay. We've kept you for almost an hour. Did you want to do a quick preview of the World Series? Which yeah, was- I think it. You know, I'm going to be happy either way. Uh, I just hope it's a good series. I always hope that uh, it isn't decided by uh, – you know, a, a play where somebody ends up being, you know, making a an error at the wrong time. But, uh, uh, you know, if Texas wins, I'd be happy for 
for Bruce Bochy and Chris Young and what they've done with that organization. Of course, the Diamondbacks, I think, would be sentimentally a, a more of a favorite with uh, fans around the country because it's a team that nobody's heard much about, and yet they're playing baseball pretty much the old-fashioned way. So we, I think we'll have a popular winner either way. And I, you know, they, I love these predictions that say, well, I, I'm going to pick the Rangers in five. Okay, well, will you tell me the one game that they're going to lose? Do you know which game it is already? Because then I'll, I'll call MGM and I'll make a lot of money. Right. You know, yeah. Or they'll say so-and-so in six. It goes game to game. Uh, I remember when the Tigers were heavy favorites and Justin Verlander had that, that outs- I think it was like 24-4, and four, and he was the MVP and the Cy Young. And, and all of a sudden they go out to San Francisco and Pablo Sandoval takes him deep for a couple times. And they end up, I think, I think they swept the Tigers. And uh, the Tigers were overwhelming favorites. So all of that changed really on the very first game. Yeah. And I, I didn't look up the record, but I believe the Diamondbacks, did they not lose 100 games a couple seasons ago? Both of those teams did. Yeah. Yeah, they had losing records last year, and two years ago, I think the Diamondbacks lost 110 and the Rangers 102. Oh, jeez. Uh, so to make to make turns or turnarounds like that is, uh, I think you have to go back. I covered the 91 World Series when it was Braves and Twins, and they both went from last to first. I don't know if they lost 100 games, but, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing that happen a little, little more often now. I don't think there's been uh, – or hasn't been a repeat champion in quite some time. Yeah, well, I like watching both these teams play. I've got my eye on Evan Carter and Corbin Carroll, too. And I was not an outfielder, but two young outfielders that uh, are really playing baseball the right way. And so young guys watch them out there. Well, any any parting words you want to leave the audience with today? Great show today, by the way. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. No, I just uh, I think I want to zero in. We want to enjoy the World Series, but I, I hope that during the offseason uh, – I hope that MLB uh, can really uh, dig their heels in with this initiative to uh, to try to save our young pitchers from from getting injured because it's the parents and the coaches and the uh, the travel ball influence that's that's really ruining a lot of our young uh, our young pitchers and I like to find a way to stop that. Yeah, well, I think you're 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 moving in the right direction. I think Rick Porcello has great ideas. And I think that with our audience now, we have a lot of influential people in our audience. We, we encourage you to reach out. Uh, we've been with you for, you know, 328 episodes now. So we're not going away. We're not going anywhere. And, uh, you know, 74 countries, reach out. Give us your ideas. Give us your thoughts. We'd love to hear them. And uh, we're not afraid to go anywhere or speak to anybody and uh, listen to anybody who's got the right idea to help our young kids out there. So great show today, Jim. We appreciate what you do for the network. And I know iHeart loves having you on and um, hope you have a great weekend. and. And I look forward to next week. Yeah, you as well. Hope we have uh, two good games to look at uh, tomorrow and Saturday. That's it. Just want to watch good baseball. That's all I wish for, too. Well, have a great weekend, audience. Thanks again for your support. Uh, Give this show five stars. Write some nice comments because we are battling the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in MLB. And to the 74 loyal countries out there, uh, we appreciate your support. Keep tuning in. We'll give you what you ask for. Have a great weekend, everybody.
Running out, so spin me like it's gold. I'm living like I'm not.